Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Gillinger Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 20th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Well, we've had a, um, I, I don't know, every week it seems that nothing, something new has happened. I've had computer problems all week, so tonight's going to be a slightly different kind of program. I'm not ready to start 2 Corinthians yet. I don't know if I'm going to start 2 Corinthians next week or the week after. I might do something else next week also. It's on my mind anyway. Tonight, um... Tonight I'm going to talk about the importance of Paul of Tarsus to Christian identity. And um, this podcast is really aimed at the Paul bashers, although I hope it'll find other uses as well. Before commencing this program, I must make a confession so that nobody is confused from the start. Myself and my ministry and all of its efforts are firmly grounded, I pray, it's my intention anyway, are firmly grounded in the immutable fact that all of the promises of Yahweh God and of Yahshua Christ, or Jesus, which we have in our Bibles, are absolutely 100% without exception racially exclusive to the Saxon and Celtic and related peoples. There are no exceptions. All of the promises of God are made to one race of people only. No bastards allowed. And those people today are more or less loosely identified as white Europeans or Caucasians. Of course, even these labels are not really specific enough because men have forever attempted to blur the lines at the fringes. But Yahweh's law is kind after kind, and in the end, that law will not be blurred. Listeners who are already identity Christian should know what we mean when we use those terms. Nobody who has ever followed our work at Christiania could fairly accuse us of being universalists in any sense of the word. What we believe about the Bible can and should be described in two ways. First, it is covenant theology. We understand that covenant theology is the belief in God's word as he made it the covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their seed, are made exclusively to their genetic descendants and nobody else. This is an honest acceptance of the word of God as he imparted it to men. Secondly, it is Christian identity or more fully, Christian Israel identity. It is Christian identity because we seek to identify 
through both scripture and history with the supportive language and archaeology and whatever other tools we could muster exactly what people on earth today are the beneficiaries of those covenants. Covenant theology isn't any good unless you can identify the parties of the covenants. That's Christian identity. Who the children of Israel are and who they are not, according to that same word of God. It is the truth of covenant theology which leads us to the need for Christian identity. Therefore, to accurately understand Christian identity, one must first realize the truth of covenant theology. This program is intended to challenge some of the notions and claims of a certain segment of so-called identity Christians concerning Paul of Tarsus. These people, whom we have labeled as Paul bashers, generally despise Paul because they see him as having been the sole advocate of some sort of some sort of universalism, some sort of replacement theology which is practiced among the denominational sects of today. They accuse Paul of single-handedly changing the faith, which was intended exclusively for the children of Israel, into a faith which, which is shared with all people whosoever, of any race whatsoever, of any place wheresoever, and in any manner howsoever. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Paul of Tarsus taught Christian identity, and he did not teach universalism. And Paul of Tarsus cannot be blamed for universalism in the New Testament, not by himself, if anyone finds universalism in the, first, in the New Testament. So what we are first going to start off by doing is to provide just some passages in the New Testament which, when they are taken out of the general biblical context, appear to transgress the concepts of covenant theology and Israel identity. They appear, when taken out of context, to support universalism, especially the way language is used today and the meanings of words change over time. These passages all use words that universalists frequently point to for catchphrases in order to support their false theology. Paul of Tarsus is often accused by the Paul bashers when these terms 
appear in his epistles as being a universalist. We're going to read um, a series of passages now. Some words that include that, <clears throat> that, that favored catchphrase of the universalists, whosoever. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And I'm not going to say where that it is. Not yet. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. And again, and blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. And again, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. And again, whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receives me, and whosoever shall receive me receives not me, but him that sent me. And one more time. No, I'm sorry. There's a couple more. I'm a liar. Also, I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. And again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And again, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord. I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And again, I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believes on me should not abide in darkness. And one more time. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I've heard it from Paul Bashers time and time again that Paul gave the faith to whosoever, but not one of those passages. Not one of those passages are from Paul. Passages containing the phrase every man, or its equivalent, all men. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he shall reward every man according to his works. And again, he was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And again, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be 
all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that is heard and is learned of the Father, cometh unto me. Similar terms. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's even way beyond the idea of every man. He that believes and is baptized, your dog, maybe, your, your, your gerbil, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. Words, verses containing the phrases all nations or every nation. I've seen Paul really get blamed for universalism with these phrases. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. All nations. My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. How about this? Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. Can't blame Paul for that one. That one's Peter. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Every nation all nations. How about the whole world? Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also be this, that this woman is done, be told for a memorial of her. And that verse is repeated in two gospels. I won't reiterate it. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. How about that phrase about Gentiles, the Gentiles? Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, 
neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he sends forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. It's one more. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all the people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. That's the way the King James reads that passage. It's not the way I would read it. Now, we have just quoted 28. This one that I skipped reading because it was identical. I already read 27. We just quoted 28 passages of Scripture that are commonly cited by people who are looking to support universalism. Paul gets blamed by the Paul bashers for universalism, but none. None of those statements are in the letters of Paul. Not one of those statements were found in Paul. Paul of Tarsus is often falsely accused of promoting universalism for making statements similar to these. And he did make some statements similar to some of the ones found here. But the Paul bashers are unfairly accusing Paul of passages and of statements that are really found in all of the biblical writings. The Paul bashers, being the idiots that they really are, would eject Paul from the Bible because of his universalism, when in reality, Paul was teaching covenant theology, and Paul was teaching Christian identity. Of these 28 passages, which we have just cited, I purposely did not give the locations of the verses. Eight of them are in Matthew. Five of them are in Mark. Five of them are from the writings of Luke. And ten from the writings of John. Maybe we should throw out the top two. Let's throw Matthew and John out of the Bible. If we toss out the ones from Luke, since he was a fellow worker of Paul, then we still have not merely two or three, but 23 witnesses supporting universalism, which can be cited by all of those who would destroy the Word of God for the benefit of devils, because that none of them really support universalism when they're read and understood within the biblical context. Of course, there are even more passages than these which may be abused in such a manner. But we believe we've made our point. The blame for all of the universalist interpretations of Scripture cannot be placed upon the shoulders of Paul of Tarsus, especially when Jesus Christ himself uses much of the same language 
that the Paul bashers point to to find fault with Paul. Yes, Jesus Christ used that term. The Gentiles. He used that term, whosoever, quite often. He used that term, all men, every man, all nations, every nation. Many of those witnesses we just pulled from the Gospels are right from the words of Christ. The Paul Blashers, and I've seen them do this, the Paul Bashers would claim that those 28 passages which are used to support universalism, they're mistranslated, or they're taken out of context. Yet, for some strange reason, they have a disconnect where passages in Paul's letters say the same things, or similar things. And they reject Paul based on the universalist mistranslations or the universalist abuses of context. The Paul bashers are quick to make assertions about mistranslations in the rest of the Bible, but they have a cognitive dissonance when they accept the King James translations of Paul as if they were accurate. Ralph Daigle, I hope you're listening. In truth, Paul is by far the most mistranslated writer in the Bible. Now we assert that Paul taught covenant theology, and Paul taught Christian identity. But before we offer any examples demonstrating the truth of that assertion, we must first ask this. Where? is Christian identity in the New Testament without Paul of Tarsus. I would challenge any and all men, and perhaps whosoever, of the Paul bashers to prove Christian identity from the New Testament without Paul of Tarsus. It's not happening. You're not going to do it. In Matthew 15, 24, Joshua Christ said, I am come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, that's indeed an exclusive statement. And it is a witness which supports the validity of covenant theology. But that alone does not help us identify who those sheep are, nor does any other statement in the Gospel of Matthew. There's not one statement in the Gospel of Matthew that tells us who the lost sheep of the house of Israel are, not one. Do we blame Matthew for that? 
should Matthew be faulted for that? If we only had the Gospel of Matthew and the whole New Testament, would we know who the New Covenant was for? Would we know who Christ came to save? We think he came to save the whole world. Because that's what Matthew says. Every nation, whosoever, all men. That's not what the, New, what the Old Testament says, but it's said in Matthew. We can't blame Matthew for that. Certainly not. Matthew's ministry was to record the gospel and to be a fisher of men. Fishers cast a net, and they have no control as to what sort of fish wind up in it. Which is why Christ had given us the parable of the net so that we would understand the function of the fishers. The Apostle James wrote in his single epistle to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. But in the first century... There were no nations. There were no company of nations. There were no tribes except in Judea and its immediate environs. There were no tribes in Europe and Eurasia which identified themselves by the names of the ancient Israelites. There were no tribe of Naphtali or Zebulun running around Central Europe or Southern Asia. No, not at all. They didn't use those names anymore. And most of them, probably 99.9% of them, there were some stragglers in Mesopotamia, that's evident in history, who maintained links and memories of the ancient kingdom 600, 700 years later. But they were a very small minority of the dispersed children of Israel. In the first century, there were no tribes that would have recognized who James was writing to. James They were not using those names any longer. They hadn't used those names for many centuries. James does not tell us who those 12 tribes are in terms that would be ethnographically recognizable to Greeks or Romans or Persians. James doesn't say, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad who were now Galatahi or Sake or Parthians or Goths. He only writes to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He does not tell us who they are. The Apostle John. The Apostle John talks about the world, and he says things like, In reference to Christ, he says things like, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But from John's gospel, or from John's epistles alone, 
We do not know what world he is talking about. The Jews and the Judaized, because the denominational sects of today are all Judaized, the Jews and the Judaized Christians claim that James wrote only to pockets of scattered Jews, which is a lie. While the world of which John speaks is the entire planet and everyone on it, which is also a lie. But there is no way from New Testament writings alone, there is no way to correct those mistaken assumptions. Seeing the explicit promises of God in the Old Testament, it becomes hopelessly irreconcilable with these Judaized interpretations of the words of the apostles. The Gospel of Mark does not help to resolve this problem. And the epistles of Peter and Jude, as they are generally understood, they don't help either. Therefore, many of the Paul bashers become a sort of Old Testament Christian as opposed to the Judeo-Christian New Testament Christians. They discard or ignore most of the Old Testament. The advent of the Messiah and what it means to the children of Israel becomes virtually unheralded, which is also contrary to the Old Testament. Christian identity principles can indeed be outlined in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is Christian identity, there's no doubt. One can go through the promises to the patriarchs and the writings of the prophets to explain and explain their various fulfillments. And we could do that without the New Testament, for the most part, until we get to the Messianic prophecies and until we get to the prophecies of reconciliation between God and Israel. However, explaining the prophets, explaining how prophecies are fulfilled requires explicit historical witnesses. If you do not have explicit historical witnesses to accompany your explanations of your prophetic interpretations and your explanations of the fulfillments of the prophecies, if you don't have explicit historical witnesses, they can be easily challenged. They can just be knocked over. They're standing on nothing. They're founded on nothing. The prophets of ancient Israel foretold of many things. They presaged the destruction of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And the books of Kings and Chronicles are the historical witnesses to those events. Yes, we do have 
inscriptions that we found thousands of years later, those inscriptions were lost. They were buried under the sand of Mesopotamia by the time of Christ. The prophets foretold the destruction of the old kingdoms, and the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles are records. They represent records, biblical records of the fulfillment of those prophecies. The prophets foretold things like the second temple, the building of a new temple. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and even the book of Maccabees, witnesses to that. Jeremiah foretold that Jerusalem would lie desolate for 70 years. And Ezra and Nehemiah are the historical record of the time of Jerusalem following that 70-year period. The prophets also foretold that the children of Israel would be put off from Yahweh their God. And in their dispersions, that they would become many nations. Doing this, the prophets also foretold that the word of God in the gospel of Christ would reconcile the children of Israel, to God. The gospel would reconcile the children of Israel to Yahweh their God. This is explicit in Isaiah chapter 53. It's also found in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, and in Hosea. The dispersed children of Israel, not the ones in Palestine, this is the pleading or the nourishment, whether you read Jeremiah and Isaiah or the revelation of the woman in the wilderness. Where's the historical record that shows the fulfillment of that? Without... Paul of Tarsus, there are no historical witnesses to, to this reconciliation of Israel and Yahweh in the New Testament. Paul of Tarsus, just like Ezra, and Nehemiah recorded the 70 weeks kingdom of Daniel, the 70 years desolation and rebuilding of a new temple prophesied in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, just as Ezra and Nehemiah are the historical witnesses of those prophecies. Paul of Tarsus is the only historical witness 
in the scripture. To the prophecies concerning the reconciliation of Israel to Yahweh. He used that exact term many times in his epistle. He called his gospel to the so-called Gentiles. His gospel to the nations. He called it a gospel of reconciliation. It's in Romans. It's in Colossians. It's in Ephesians. It's in others of his epistles. He's the historical witness. And he's the only historical witness that we have in our Bible. The reconciliation of Israel to Yahweh through the gospel is explicit in Isaiah 53. It's found in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea. But without Paul of Tarsus, it's not found in the New Testament. Rejecting Paul of Tarsus, one removes all of the explicit proofs of Christian identity from the New Testament. There are none after Paul is removed, even though the Gospels, the writings, not just the Gospel, the writings of John, Jude, Peter, James, Mark, Matthew, they all have great import to the gospel message. None of them none of them have any explicit identification of the children of Israel in their dispersion. So, rejecting Paul of Tarsus, what are the Paul bashers really doing? What are they really doing? If we believe the historical and archaeological proofs of what we consider to be Christian identity, as we should, and if the prophets of God accurately foretold that the children of Israel would become many nations and inherit the earth. Where is the biblical history verifying those words of the prophets? If Christ came only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, where are the instructions 
regarding how to find them. They're not Matthew or John or Mark or Peter or James or Jude. They're not even in the Gospel of Luke. The plain and simple truth is that those proofs and instructions are only found in the epistles of Paul of Tarsus. Paul wrote them out explicitly. Paul is the only New Testament writer to explicitly identify the sheep. And the Paul bashers are every bit as ignorant of those instructions as the Judeo-Christians are ignorant of them. We've just finished a 19-part presentation on Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Before that, we presented his epistle to the Romans in 21 parts. That's 40 podcasts on Paul's two lengthiest epistles, which, if we had to guess, are only about 35% of his writings. Therefore, we will be presenting Paul's epistles here on Friday evenings for at least another year. Yahweh, God be willing. This is a reflection of the depth to which Paul of Tarsus must be studied in order to truly understand at least a good portion of what he had written. And I'm sure if I went back and looked at my Romans podcasts, I'd find things that I didn't explain well enough or things that I missed or things that are beyond my capability to explain well enough. And perhaps somebody else in the future will do better. The Paul Bashers. Only look at one or two of the seemingly universalist statements, which in reality are not universalist at all, and they dismiss Paul entirely. That is precisely why the Apostle Peter had said in his second epistle that our beloved brother Paul also according to the wisdom given unto him, as written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, 
which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or pervert. That's what the word means. As they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Those people that reject the epistles of Paul because they have the wrong understanding of them are perverting the epistles of Paul and Peter says that those people also pervert the other scriptures unto their own destruction. That sounds like the, um, the, 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 the insane clown posse that Clifton Emmerheiser calls the Ephraim Scepter heresy. They reject Paul and then they go and pervert all the other scriptures. Peter must have been a prophet. Well, he certainly was a prophet. He prophesied the Ephraim Scepter heretics. That's a, that's a digression. Now, we are going to summarize just a few of the proofs presented during our first 40 podcasts on Paul's epistles. That Paul certainly did teach Christian identity. If I were to summarize all of the proofs in Romans and 1 Corinthians, we would probably be here for another couple of weeks. But we've already presented all of that. Tonight I'm only going to present enough to make my point here that Paul taught covenant theology and Christian identity. In Romans chapter 4, let me say this first. If we believe Christian identity to be true, and if Paul taught Christian identity, then it should be absolutely clear to any rational and sane individual that Paul of Tarsus is the signal New Testament witness validating our Christian faith. If Paul is the only New Testament witness to what we believe to be true, which is the identity of the Saxon, Celtic, and related peoples of Europe with the Israelites of the Old Testament, if we believe that to be true, and Paul's the only New Testament witness of it, how can we reject Paul? That would be, well, that would be crazy. But we would be rejecting our own profession while we claim to have that profession. That's really what the Paul bashers are doing. They're claiming to be Christian identity, and they're rejecting it. I wonder why. In Romans chapter 4, in the very first verse, Paul uses the term forefather to describe Abraham as the progenitor of both 
the Judeans, and the Romans. The King James Version has only father in that passage. And the idea of such a father is spiritualized by the denominational sects. However, the ancient manuscripts have forefather. There's a world of difference. A forefather is a genetic ancestor and cannot, that word cannot be spiritualized in such a manner. Paul's use of the term forefather relating to Abraham in reference to the Romans has precedence within the epistle. In Romans chapter 1, Paul, speaking of the pagan Romans, had already explained that at one time, when they knew God, as he says, that they were not thankful, but instead they became vain in their imaginations. Paul then says that they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And that they had changed the truth of God into a lie. He's saying this about pagan Romans. They changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. And then Paul says that for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. Now, according to the word of God in the Old Testament, only the children of Israel were his people. All of these things can only be said of the Israelites of the Old Testament. These things are also perfectly descriptive of everything that had been done by the Israelites, the Old Testament, that God had condemned them for. So Paul is teaching the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the children of Israel and what had, been, had become of them. We read in the Old Testament, the children of Israel turned to paganism, God threw them out of Palestine. We read in Paul that the Romans, they used to know God, and they used to be with God, but they turned to paganism. They must be. <laughs> they must be those Israelites at the other end of the story. Then, in Romans chapter 2, Paul explains that these same Romans, by building a society based upon the rule of law, had shown the work of the law written in their hearts, which can only be a reference to the promises made to the children of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 31, that he would write his law in their hearts. 
And Paul is teaching the fulfillment of that promise in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 3, Paul asserts that Christians should continue to keep the laws of God, which the faith does not annul, where he says in its final verse, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yeah, we establish the law. Many Paul bashers, who have basically become Old Testament Christians because they ignore the New Testament, if they're really Christians at all, simply do not take the time required to examine Paul's words as those words are in full accord with the prophets. One example we gave in um, our presentation of Romans was from the prophet Habakkuk. In ancient Israel, as we have seen the prophet Habakkuk explain, the people failed to keep God's law, and for that reason, they were compelled to live under tyrants, to suffer under the Babylonians and the laws of tyrannical men. So in Habakkuk, the word of Yahweh says, the just shall live by faith. In Romans chapter 1, Paul quotes that very passage of Habakkuk. And then, in Romans chapters 2 and 3, Paul explains the same thing, that the righteous among the people of God should keep his law in faith. So we see that Paul is explaining to us that the Romans are of the ancient dispersions of Israel. And if we take the time to examine all of the historical and archaeological proofs that, I, that identity Christians have exhibited, we find that Paul is true that the ancient Romans, through their Trojan ancestors, did indeed descend from Old Testament Israelites. Only the Trojans, the people who became the Trojans, had departed from the main body of Israel many centuries before the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations. Then in Romans chapter 4, Paul defines the faith of Abraham. According to the Old Testament promises made to Abraham, he doesn't innovate one bit. Here we shall quote the King James Version, where it describes Paul as saying from Romans chapter 4, from verse 9, Is this blessing then pronounced upon the circumcision or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say to Abraham his faith was reckoned for righteousness. How then was it reckoned when he was in circumcision or uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. 
And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while he was in uncircumcision, that he might be the father of all of them that believe, though they be in uncircumcision, that righteousness might be reckoned unto them. And the father of circumcision to them who were not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had in uncircumcision. For not through the law was the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he should be heir of the world, but through the righteousness of faith those promises were made before the law. For if they that are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is made of no effect. For the law works wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there transgression. <clears throat> For this cause, it is of the faith that it may be according to grace, to the end, that the promise may be sure to all the seed the offspring, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made thee. And the rest of this verse is important to understanding that statement. Before him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls the things that are not as though they were, who in hope believed against hope, to the end that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. And Paul reiterates this in order to make it perfectly emphatically clear so shall thy seed be. Here Paul makes an analogy of Abraham's having received the faith before he was circumcised to show that all of Abraham's offspring through Jacob hold these promises, not only those who still kept the law, but those cast off Israelites who had long ago stopped keeping the law. When Paul had spoken these words, there were still many Israelites among the circumcision in Judea. But there were many more lost sheep Israelites who had forsaken circumcision when they forsook Yahweh their God and were cast out of ancient Israel. That is the very story told by the Old Testament prophets. And Paul is at the other end of time. He's at the other end of time. Reconciling those cast-off Israelites to God. 700, 800 years later.
Paul informs us that the faith of Abraham was the belief in God's words where God promised that Abraham's seed, his offspring, would become many nations. And Paul is again telling these Romans that they are one of those nations. Identity Christians know this to be true. It is our profession of faith as well. But without Paul, we would not have this revelation in our Bibles. We would be able to read the Old Testament and see the promise to Abraham, but we would have no historical proof in Scripture as to who those people were that came from the seed of Abraham. Paul tells us who. And in the Bible, only, only Paul tells us who. Nobody else. We can find hints in the Revelation. They're only hints. They're not explicit statements. Many of the Paul bashers in, who claim to be Christian identity are simpletons who want to believe that there were no good so-called Jews at the time of Christ. In fact, the word Jew is not in the scripture at the time of Christ. So nobody's referring to Jews. The word Jew in the New Testament is Judean everywhere in Greek. There were no good Edomites, but there were many good Judeans. The same Paul bashers who would claim that Jew is Jew in reference to Paul also assert that Jew is Judean in reference to Christ, thereby exhibiting their own hypocrisy. In the New Testament, Jew is Judean everywhere. And it was only a Roman political designation in the first century. It did not describe a race of people. It described a province which was made up of many different races of people. Some of those people were Israelites. Some of those people were Edomites. Some of those people were Shelahites. Some of those people were descended from the other tribes brought in by the Assyrians. Some of those people were Egyptians. Christ often preached to people in Judea. And Christ had many faithful followers in Judea. One example is where the Gospel tells us that the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha was in Bethany. Bethany was a town of Judea. 
It wasn't in Galilee. It was only two miles from Jerusalem. John the Baptist was baptizing in Judea, not in Galilee. Christ spent much time in the homes of Pharisees and on the streets of various towns preaching in Judea. Christ came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He spent time in Galilee doing that, and he spent much of his time in Judea doing that. In Romans chapter 9, Paul explains that many of the Judeans are Israelites in Judea. And he also explains that there are Edomites in Judea as well. When Paul talks about the circumcision and the uncircumcision in the promises and the faith of Abraham, and that Abraham's seed would inherit the earth in Romans chapter 4, he's not talking about the Edomites. In other scriptures, Paul makes it clear as well. In Galatians chapter 3, for instance, aside from here in Romans, that he's talking not about the Edomites, but about the Israelites in Judea. They are the circumcision of Romans chapter 4. Not the Edomites. In Romans chapter 9, Paul sorts that out. Paul explains that many of the Judeans are Israelites in Judea. They are the circumcision of Romans chapter 4. Paul also explains that there are many Edomites in Judea. He does this as a sort of prayer where he says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my kinsmen according to the flesh, those who are Israel. So we see that Paul counts Israel as according to the flesh. To whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants, this is covenant theology. It's made only with Israel, according to the flesh. And the giving of law, and the service of God, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. So if Christ is a descendant of Israel according to the flesh, then so are the rest of the Israelites. Who is over all, God blessed forever. And I'm reading and interpreting the King James Version so that nobody could say that I'm changing the scripture. The Christian New Testament says something quite different but along the same lines.
the children of Israel are according to the flesh. Verse 6 in Romans 9. Not as though the word of God has taken none effect. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. In other words, all of those people in Israel, they're not all Israelites. And yes, the place was still called Israel by the apostles and by Christ. The place is still called Israel. There's several examples of that in Scripture. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. The children of the flesh, the unions and the bonds that men make, the children of the promise are the children of Jacob Israel according to the law of God. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having any done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him, but of him that calls. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. When Jacob got married, he obeyed his parents as to who to marry. When Esau several times got married, he followed after his own desires and still could never get it right. Esau's children are the children of the flesh. Jacob's children are the children of the spirit because he obeyed the will of his parents who reflected the will of his God. Here in Romans 9, Paul expresses a concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh, where it is clear that Paul is referring to Israelites by their genealogy. To literal descendants of Jacob and the twelve tribes. Then he warns that not all of those in Israel are actually Israelites, and goes on to compare Jacob and Esau, which illustrates for us that many of these people in Israel, although they too are of the seed of Abraham, as Christ also admitted to them in John chapter 8. They are actually Edomites, so they're the seed of Abraham, but they're not the children of Abraham. They are actually Edomites, and they are not Israelites at all. Paul goes on later in the chapter to compare the Israelites to vessels of mercy, which accords with the prophets. And he compares the Edomites as vessels of destruction, which also accords with the prophets. 
There are several places in other scriptures, such as Luke chapter 11, John chapter 8, and a couple of somewhat esoteric statements in the epistles of the other apostles, and a couple of statements in the Revelation about the synagogue of Satan, where it is evident to anyone who's read the entire scripture that not all Judeans are Israelites, but nowhere else in the New Testament do we see it explained explicitly that there are a significant number of Edomites in Judea and that the presence of these Edomites is the reason for the division in Judea. Not that the word of God has failed, but they are not all Israel who are of Israel. The Apostle John said the same thing, but much more enigmatically when he said in chapter 2 of his first epistle, they came out from us, but they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have abided with us. John made it very clear there that there were interlopers amongst the Judeans, and they were the people that did not accept the Christ. John made that very clear. But John didn't tell us explicitly who they were. Paul is telling us explicitly. And this is only found here in Romans chapter 9. It can be discerned from the prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 34. It can be seen in the history of Josephus if one is actually looking for such a thing. It can be missed, too. It's been missed by generations of readers of Josephus. But it's only explicit in the New Testament here in Romans chapter 9. Only Paul of Tarsus brings the prophecy and the history together into one consistent, coherent picture. Without Paul, these things would certainly still be hid from our eyes. We see Paul in Romans chapter 9, reckon Israel as according to the flesh. He didn't care about any spiritual Israelites. He didn't care if they were believers or not. In fact, he's writing in concern for these Israelites in Judea because they were not yet believers. That's why he's expressing concern for them. 
but he still reckons them as Israelites according to the flesh. Because there are no such things as Israelites according to the Spirit. That's a sham. The flesh comes first, and then the Spirit. If there is a fleshly body, there is a spiritual body. But not all flesh is the same flesh. Paul reckons Israel according to the flesh. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul did that same thing. He reckoned Israel according to the flesh. But he was not speaking of Judaics. Not at all. He was speaking of pagan Europeans and called them Israel according to the flesh. It is quite clear in history that the Corinthians were from a tribe of the Greeks called Dorians. Greek was not a race, by the way. The word Greek applied to a group of tribes who lived in the same area, for the most part, that adhered to a common culture and language. But those tribes didn't all have the same origin. They did ultimately. They were all Adamic, but some of them were Japheti. Some of them were Israelite. Some of them were from differing tribes of Japhetites, Israelites, and other Shemites. Collectively, they were called Greeks only according to their culture and language. The Corinthians were from a tribe of the Greeks called Dorians, the famous Spartans of antiquity were also Dorians. However, the Spartans were also called Lacedaemonians because Sparta was situated in a district of the Peloponnesus in Greece known as Lacedaemon. So Spartans and Corinthians were both Dorians, but they were not both Lacedaemonians. By all accounts, the Dorians had come to the Peloponnesus by sea sometime around 1100 BC. Paul had told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul could only have said such things to the Dorians if they were Israelites, if they were descendants of ancient Israel. And 
and when we presented 1 Corinthians here recently, we provided a good portion of the historical truths supporting that statement. The Dorians were indeed Israelites. They were indeed descended from the tribes of ancient Israel. Not all of the tribes of Greeks were Israelites, but it can be demonstrated from history that the Dorian Greeks were Israelites. And nowhere else in the New Testament is any such explicit connection between any of the tribes of the Greeks made with ancient Israel. That understanding, which Paul of Tarsus explicitly professes, is the foundation of our Christian identity profession. Paul is teaching exactly what Christian identity teaches. Then Paul begins to warn the Corinthians about idolatry. As their ancient Israelite ancestors had gotten caught up in idolatry. And the proof of that, the proof that he's talking about the Corinthians' ancestors, that's found even further in the next chapter where it says that they were once a people taken off into idolatry. So there's more proof to this than simply 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But it's very explicit here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And talking to the Corinthians about idolatry, later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, Behold, Israel after the flesh, now that's the King James Version, are not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. What say I then, that the idol is anything? He's talking about idolaters. He's not talking about Judeans. The Judeans, they are not running around Europe at Paul's time sacrificing to idols on pagan altars. Judeans are not doing that. Only pagan Greeks and Romans and Scythians are doing that. Thracians. What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. The phrase here, Israel 
after the flesh. That phrase, after the flesh, is from the same Greek words which the King James Version translates as according to the flesh in Romans chapter 9. It should say, Behold, Israel, according to the flesh, and the term after the flesh meant that very thing back in 1611. Israel, according to the flesh. Behold, Israel, according to the flesh, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. Here, using the language of the King James Version, Paul is clearly saying that the Gentiles, who are pagans sacrificing to devils, are actually Israel according to the flesh. With that, we see why he called his gospel of reconciliation to the Gentiles a gospel of reconciliation. because they were Israel. Not spiritual Israel. They were Israel according to the flesh. And this sacrificing to devils. This is the same thing for which the ancient Israelites were cast off from God which is found in the Old Testament in places such as Deuteronomy chapter 32, where it says of Israel that they provoke him. They provoked God to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed to devils, not to God. There you have it. We see this complaint in Deuteronomy that the children of Israel, they're sacrificing to devils and not to God. 1,400, 1,500 years later, Paul of Tarsus is pointing out Israel according to the flesh. The real Israelites, that's what that means. Not those Edomite bastards back in Palestine claiming to be Israel. No, he's not talking about them. He's talking about real Israel. So he calls them Israel according to the flesh. Fourteen hundred years after Moses wrote the charge in Deuteronomy chapter 32, at the other end of time, Paul of Tarsus, stands and points to those same Israelites, to their descendants 1,400 years later, who are doing that very thing that the Bible said they were doing. 
And the Bible said that they would be doing until they returned to God through Christ. Paul was teaching exactly what Christian identity professes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is explicitly stating that the pagan nations of Europe were Israel according to the flesh. who were the descendants of those cast-off Israelites of antiquity who were being punished for their idolatry. This is exactly the same as Christian identity teaches today. Paul Paul was the first Christian identity teacher. In Romans chapter 4, Paul had said in relation of the promise to Abraham that the promise may be sure to all the seed, not to that which is of the law only, meaning the circumcised Israelites in Judea, but also to that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, meaning the Israelites of Judea, and the Romans, as it is written, a father of many nations I have made thee, before him whom he believed, even God. And the rest of this is important to understand. Who gives life to the dead and calls the things that are not as though they were. In other words, The nations which were the heirs of the promise are the seed or the descendants of Abraham. Whether or not they kept the law, they were still the descendants, and the promises were still for them. And those nations did not yet exist when the promise was made to Abraham. That's all Paul's saying there that God calls things that are not as if they are, meaning that he names things that do not yet exist. Those nations that Abraham was made a father of did not yet exist, and they could not have existed yet if indeed they were to come from the seed of Abraham, from his descendants. And that is what Paul is verifying. There's no replacement theology. Neither the Romans nor the Corinthians neither the Trojans nor the Dorian Greeks had existed at the time when the promise to Abraham was made, circa 2000 B.C. 
They could not have existed because they came into existence after the time that the Israelites went down to Egypt and later went into captivity there. And they went into captivity there just before 1600 B.C. From that time, during the century, century and a half before the Exodus, did the Israelites begin to break off Tribes of Israel began to break off from the main body of each tribe. And people from each tribe began to emigrate to those distant places. And is history, indeed, or Siculus, supporting that? That proclivity to move to colonies abroad in search of greener pastures, remained with the children of Israel until the, the, the ultimate deportations of the remnants of Israel and Judah to Assyria and Babylon. And even after that, they continued that practice. Here are two witnesses from his own epistles that Paul accounted Israelites as according to the flesh, which identity Christians also insist is the way that Israelites should be accounted. Nowhere else is that explained in Scripture explicitly. The Apostle James did write to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, However, just as James had reckoned Israel by tribes, so did Paul reckon Israel by tribes. And that's evident in Acts chapter 26. And the events of Acts chapter 26 can be shown to have been even after he wrote Romans or Corinthians, where he said, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. Out of the four Gospels, that same promise is only explicitly explained in Luke chapter 1, Luke being the gospel of Paul's fellow worker and companion. Paul was an Old Testament Christian, but he also believed the New, the New Testament. Paul was an Old Testament Christian. He consistently cited those scriptures which provided a foundation for his teachings concerning the dispersed nations of Israel to whom he brought the gospel. For instance, in Romans chapter 9, Paul says in verse 25, Quoting Hosea, he says, as he, meaning God, as he says also in Hosea, I will call that my people which was not my people, and her beloved that was not beloved, 
And it shall be that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the sons of the living God. Now, if we don't go back and read Hosea and see what he's talking about, we might screw up with this verse and think, oh, Paul's teaching universalism. That's what New Testament Christians do. They only pay any attention to those parts of the Old Testament which happen to be repeated in the New Testament. They don't go back and read the context. It can't be taken for granted that Paul was taking those passages out of context, that he was writing that stuff copying it because he thought it sounded cool. That's not why he was copying it. He was copying it because he understood who Israel was according to the flesh, and he was teaching the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in those people that he knew were Israel according to the flesh. Paul said this in Romans 9 in connection with the discussion of vessels of mercy, which he said were among both Judeans and the Gentiles, to use the language of the King James Version. However, first, we have seen Paul's definition of Gentiles in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to mean Israel according to the flesh. And second, the passage that he quotes here from Hosea is also specific to those same Israelites. Hosea was addressing the children of Israel in antiquity as they were being taken into the Assyrian captivity, where he said from verse 10 of Hosea chapter 1, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, meaning to the children of Israel, Ye are not my people. It shall be said to them, meaning the children of Israel, Ye are the sons of the living God, those same children of Israel to whom it was said, ye are not my people. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is teaching what we would call covenant theology to the Christians at Rome, explaining to them that the Gentiles to whom he brought the gospel were those same Israelites according to the flesh and that the promise to Abraham and the fulfillment of the prophets was found in this revelation. These things which prove the fulfillment of the prophets in those regards, these things are not found anywhere else in the word of God except for the letters of Paul. Paul's mission is therefore the historical record of the fulfillment of the words of the prophets. Without Paul, there is 
no historical record in Scripture concerning the fulfillment of those words. There are many other proofs of Christian identity truths in Paul's epistles, both in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, and also in his other epistles. which we look forward to further elucidating as our ser- series of the letters of Paul continues. It was the task of Peter through Mark, of Matthew, to record and disseminate the gospel of Christ. They must have done it well, Because in the face of adversity from the Jews, their records still survive to us today. John was also assigned that task. And even beyond that, he was chosen to fulfill the role of prophet for Christ. Recording the revelation, just as the Old Testament prophets recorded the more ancient word of Yahweh. To Luke, to Luke, this task was also assigned. And in addition to his record of the gospel, he was also to record the Acts of the Apostles. John was evangelist, and prophet, where Luke was an evangelist and also, to some degree, a historian. Paul did not record his own gospel. However, it is evident that the gospel which Paul called his own was that which was recorded by Luke. And you'll see covenant theology in Luke's Gospel, with all certainty throughout Luke chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 2, but you won't see an explicit identification of who the tribes of Israel were anywhere but in Paul's epistles. Paul had another mission, which is described by Luke in Acts chapter 9, in the words of Christ to Hananiah, or Ananias, where it says, For he is a chosen vessel by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. That is exactly what Paul's letters recorded Paul as having done. He brought the gospel set down by others to the nations and kings of the children of Israel in accordance 
with the Old Testament prophets. To despise Paul is to despise the very foundation of Christianity, which is, Christianity is the reconciliation of Israel, Israel according to the flesh, to their Messiah, Yahweh God. Come in the flesh. There are Paul bashers among mainstream Christians as well as identity Christians. Of course, the Jews, the Jews hate Paul to this very day. But they really hate Paul for doing exactly what identity Christians should embrace. That Paul took the gospel message to the dispersed of Israel. He took the gospel message to the lost sheep that Christ came for. As we see in Acts chapter 22, where Paul was speaking to a crowd of Judeans upon his arrest, and he says to them of his ministry that God had told him to go because I shall send you off to distant nations. And then Luke records that they listened until this word. and raise their voice, saying, Take such as him from the earth, for it is not fit that he lives. Luke is portraying that the Jews wanted to kill Paul for bringing the gospel to those distant nations, to the lost sheep. While it is apparent from the records in the book of Acts, and in the statements of Christ in the gospel, that the Jews themselves were trying to Judaize even the lost sheep. The Jews were continually trying to make converts of the Greeks and the Romans. Even Christ remarks on that in the Gospel. The Jews are still trying to kill Paul today. And today, well... The Jews have successfully Judaized most of the lost sheep. Most white Europeans today are indeed Judaized. There are Paul bashers among Judeo-Christians for other reasons as well. Paul taught the traditional role of women in the kingdom of God and modern feminists bash him for it. Paul taught that homosexuals were sinners who had no place in God's kingdom, and sexual deviants bash him for it. In the New Testament, the only explicit language forbidding feminism and homosexuality is found in the letters of Paul. So the Paul bashers 
among Christian identity people, the Paul Bashers are the partners of Jews, feminists, and homosexuals. We never really expected any of the Paul Bashers themselves to listen to the lengthy series entitled Against the Paul Bashers, which we did in 2013 and early 2014 here at Christa Radio, and which we actually even hope to resume at some point in the future. Since we did that series, there is not one Paul Basher of the many which we are aware of who has admitted having repented. We've noticed that some of them have stepped back a little bit, but they still haven't admitted repenting. We never really expected any of the Paul Bashers to listen to our series on Acts, on Romans, or on 1 Corinthians either. Our purpose tonight is that we plan on using this single podcast as an example to Paul Bashers in the future so that they don't have to listen to a 20- or 30-part series in order to learn how stupid they are, in order to learn the folly of their ways. If they do listen to this one podcast, then here we shall challenge them to listen to the presentations on our epistles of Paul. And if they do not repent, they must explain how they could possibly uphold their Paul-bashing idiocy after listening to this. Identity Christians should not accept Paul-bashers among their number. Paul-bashing is antithetical to Christianity, but it's especially antithetical to Christian identity. The Universalists and the Jews distort not only Paul, but all Scripture. Yet eliminating Paul, one actually helps the cause of the Universalists and the Jews. This is exactly why in the past, we've made posts at the Christiania Forum describing Paul Bashers as non-Christians and as whores for the Jews. So, I'm not going to say any last names, but Ralph, Scott, Russell, Seth, Keith, and the rest of you Paul Bashers, who I know listen to these programs at least occasionally, if you hear this one, you are all put on notice. You have been informed of your own stupidity. Now we'll see how humble you are and whether or not you can admit to your stupidity. Paul Bashing is absolutely contrary to Christian identity. And it is very favorable to the entire Jewish agenda. Undermine scripture. Undermine the foundations upon which Christian 
society was formed. If you are indeed a Christian, it's time to repent because Christian identity scholarship and the progress of our message is going to move forward with or without you. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night with open lines. Please call. Praise Yahweh. And good night.